0: Hey everybody, welcome to a very uh, special bonus episode of Talking to Time. Uh, Michael and I, we were sort of chatting recently uh, over a, a nice steak dinner about what, if any, movie uh, we would want to cover from this year. If, if, we, if, if we ever, if the well ever ran dry, Talking to Time, you know, if we ever ran like, out Like of, it would. Yeah, right. If we ever ran out of rocks to turn over and new subjects of discourse, obviously... That would never be the case, but what other movie from this year would would we want to uh, to discuss on the podcast? And we both said at the drop of the hat, no no questions asked, licorice licorice pizza.
1: pizza,
0: absolutely. And so we figured, you know what the heck, we're not going to miss a, a, a main a main feed episode of talking to Tan, obviously. But we thought, why not do a little something extra for the kids out there, a little. A little uh, stocking stuffer for them, if you will. A little mm. bonus app discussing uh, another great filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson, and his, uh, his 2021 offering, Licorice Pizza. So, uh, Michael, uh, what, do you, what do you got?
1: Uh, I'll say this. This is a movie that I was excited about before it came out. Um, I, I'm a big Paul Thomas Anderson guy. Someone I kind of grew into later in life. Um, I don't think I really got Paul An- Tom Paul Thomas Anderson or got really into him until like I don't know like 2015 when I went back and started watching his films. But I was excited about this movie. There was a lot of mystery around it, and I was actually in one of the theaters in Los Angeles the first weekend they were showing the trailer on 35 millimeter at two different theaters in Los Angeles, and I think I was at like the second or third screening where it played, and. I found it electrifying. Like, the trailer to this movie itself it got me so excited. Um, and the movie didn't disappoint. I've seen it twice. Um, I'm seeing it again for for Christmas Day. This will already be out after that happens. But um, I'm a fan. I think it does a lot of very cool things. I don't think it's his best movie. I don't even think it's in his top three. But I think it's a, a great film. And I think especially considering it's carried by two first-time actors is, is incredible. And I still find myself reflecting on that with all of the incredible performances we've had in films this year by some of the most seasoned actors in the game the fact that two newbies carried a pta film and carried it to a satisfying completion just wonderful stuff
0: yeah and and there's also this lovely sense of like of kinship or or family about the film in a weird way that like having watched all of his music videos that he's done with the the Heim sisters and knowing his working relationship with with Philip Seymour Hoffman like just seeing this come together in a weird way that just it feels sort of inauspicious it feels not necessarily like a home movie because obviously like it's a a very accurate period piece there's obviously a lot of money that went into it especially for an independent film but there's still this this real sense of of charm and and life to it, and I think that has a lot to do with the two uh, the two lead performers. Uh, they're they're both very natural on screen, and they they clearly have like a sense of security with uh, with with the director that I, I you know not to be presumptuous, but I imagine because of his working relationship and just interpersonal relationship with, uh, with both of them, that it was maybe a little bit easier to just like give themselves over to this process and, and not approach it with the pressure of like, oh, this is my feature debut or whatever. You know, this is a movie that seems uh, almost inauspicious in, in his filmography. Not that it doesn't fit in there, but he's been on a run of such like towering epics of either like there will be blood which is you know one of the best movies of the 21st century and uh the master which is just so so grand and so ambitious in scale and uh phantom thread which is my favorite of his which is mm-hmm. much smaller scale but still has like big questions and is a, a really interesting period uh, uh, approximation um and there's so much that he's doing even when he's working on a smaller scale like this that, that really elevates the material. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, uh, I loved it. I've only seen it the once, but um, it's like a lot of his movies, I think it's one that kind of works on you a little bit after the fact and, and uh, you want to revisit the energy and the vibe.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does, and this is a second a lot of what you just said, but it makes me think of sometimes how you listen to an album and it sounds like the band or the artist were having fun. When they made that album. Sure. This is a movie that it leaves you feeling like the cast and crew were having fun as they made it. Like it was a nice time. And part of me thinks it's probably because it got made, you know, middle of a pandemic when a lot of these people hadn't been around humans in a while. And they got to be together in a community making the film. But um, that's something that stuck with me. And I think that's why it's a movie that feels like it was fun to make. And it's a fun movie to sit in a theater with and watch with other people. It's fun to think about afterwards. Um, And I would definitely say, well, we'll, we're obviously going to talk a lot about this movie. But um, if you are in a position where you can see this movie in a theater and you're in between, whether you want to wait for streaming or whatever, if you feel safe, if you're able, uh, if it's a possibility. uh, For me, this is a a must see in, in a movie theater if you can. And I would also, you know, just
0: to tag that right now, I've seen a lot of folks mention this on uh, on Twitter and the like, that if you don't necessarily feel safe about going to movies right now, I don't blame you. But this Mm -mm. is probably the kind of movie with something like Spider-Man right now making box office records and attracting a lot of movie going folks. This is probably the kind of movie you will be able to see relatively safely. You know, hopefully it does well. Hopefully it brings in some box office. Uh, but I know there are a lot of movies out there right now who are kind of, you know, I, I, I hesitate to even say fighting for second because Spider-Man is taking up so much oxygen, but I, I, I do think that a, a movie like this or, or nightmare alley, you can probably feel relatively safe. Uh, with a, a less
1: crowded viewing experience. And I, I highly recommend uh, seeing this one as well. Awesome. Okay, so um, it's not a super plotty film. We'll do a quick synopsis before you get into it. So is a movie that takes place in 1973 in Paul Thomas Anderson's beloved home of the San Fernando Valley. It's a story um, about a sort of platonic love between two characters, 15-year-old Gary Valentine, um, who's a young actor, hustler, businessman, um, regular at the Tale of the Cock restaurant. And Alana, and I think her name is... is, is I think it's Kane Cain, in the movie. Kane in the movie. Kane, yeah, Alana Kane. And Alana, who is a 25-year-old edgy and angry young woman who works at a, stu- a photography studio she hates where she's sexually harassed by the boss. Um, these two meet up and, uh, you know, fun ensues. Throughout the film, Gary starts a number of businesses... Um, because his child acting career is maybe on its way out and he knows he has to pivot. Alana ends up helping him in those business pursuits and we see them start a waterbed business. Uh, We we see Gary put together his own pinball club in the San Fernando Valley. And along the way, they run into some incredible characters, uh, many of whom are based on real life people who existed in the uh, Los Angeles of the 70s. And by the end of the film, We see what happens when two people who have been fighting to, I guess, hold on to a bit of youth and a bit of hope uh, find each other and go running off into the valley together. Um, There's not a lot that I could say to spoil this movie. There's not a ton to say plot wise, but I'd say it's mostly these two people and a bit of a push and pull um, spending an indeterminate amount of time together in the valley. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I don't know what one could say to to really because it's not not really the plot. It's just it's it's two people hanging out. Yeah, more or
0: less. It it it's definitely a very kind of like it. I mean, it's obviously sort of nostalgia fueled. Um, but I I hesitated to say that just because I think that means something very different in uh, a lot of like pop culture discourse. Whether it's mm-hmm. you know Stranger Things or Ghostbusters or whatever, um, or even uh, I mentioned Spider Man earlier, like. Uh, I think a lot of movies nowadays get knocked with that notion of like, oh, well, it's just a nostalgia trip and it's, you know. Um, But this is, uh, this certainly qualifies as such. And it it does, if you're a fan of like Richard Linklater, um, you know, maybe uh, uh, Dazed and Confused, I know Paul Thomas Anderson cited as another film that was uh, an inspiration on this. Um, There is i mentioned before it's so much about an energy and about a vibe i was kind of curious what what you would want to talk about during this episode and like what our talking points even would be like from whether from your perspective as a as a philosopher i really personally as a a a film fan and enthusiast i loved seeing i thought bradley bradley cooper plays john peters in the movie if you don't know who John Peters is, uh, listening at home, he started off as um, as Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. Uh, there's a gr- really good Warren Beatty movie based on him. It's called Shampoo, and uh, his relationship with Barbara Streisand uh, sort of turned into a, uh, a romantic relationship, and based on. His relationship with her, he became something of a power player in Hollywood. Um, he produced a ton of movies up, uh, up to like uh, there, there's a really great Kevin Smith story about how um, when John Peters was producing Superman Lives uh, to be directed by Tim Burton, that he, he kept pressing Kevin Smith to write a, a big robotic spider into it. And then Kevin Smith talks about how he went to go see Wild Wild West, another John Peters production. And that the the giant mechanical spider finally showed up in that one, and it was just this weird like through line of this this guy who has a, a weird fixation on giant mechanical spiders finally got like harangued a filmmaker into putting it into a movie. Um, but there there's a lot of stuff like that. Of uh, I don't uh, I, Michael, I'm sure you know this that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, his his dad worked in television. Um, Ernie Anderson, he was a um, a, a, a Like a late night television host named Goularty who did like uh, the sort of regional Elvira um, or uh, Zachary thing where he'd introduce. Horror yeah, in like, uh, and... Cleveland, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. I think it was
0: Cleveland. Um, yeah. And uh, there are so many scenes in this film that in addition to some of the things that PTA has talked about drawing from in interviews there's so much stuff that very clearly feels like it was ripped straight out of his childhood of, you know, Oh, definitely growing up in and around this business and having friends and, and friends of friends that were in the industry and stuff like that. And, uh, there, it's just a really like, it's, it's a weirdly kind of like, not just observational, but almost passive in, in how it views those things. It, It sort of devoid of judgment. Like he presents some, there's been a lot of chatter online uh, about some somewhat controversial scenes in the film, uh, particularly, uh, particularly one regarding uh, John Michael Higgins' character, who does a pretty offensive like faux-Japanese dialect when he's talking to his, uh, his Japanese wives. Um, and when asked about that, Paul Thomas Anderson said something to the effect of how, like, uh, a friend of his, uh, or his maybe his stepmom, I'm I'm not sure is um, is Japanese, and that when people talk to her, that it seems like they don't even notice it, but they will just like affect uh, a Japanese dialect, uh, thinking presumably that that will make them easier to understand. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like that. You mentioned uh, Michael that Alana at her day job is kind of sexually harassed by uh, by her boss and stuff like that, where the movie sort of presents those things um, and it does so in a, in, in, uh, from like a sense of remove and just kind of like a frank depiction of, uh, of those less savory aspects. I'm curious your take on some of those aspects.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to get into all that, but I really quickly just wanted to take a second and shout out this episode's sponsor, um, believe it or not. This episode is brought to you by Mountain Dew. Now, there are times when you're looking for something to drink and you know that only one drink will do. And that's Mountain Dew. So the next time you want a truly, truly refreshing break, you deserve more than just to be satisfied. You deserve to be totally blown away, which is what you'll get from Mountain Dew. So if you're thirsty, you know, if you want to pause this, grab a tasty Dew, get your energy up, come back. Cool. If not, grab one later. But want wanted to at least shout our friends at Mountain Dew out. Um, Back to Licorice Pizza, though. Uh, A movie that actually involves uh, free Pepsi. PepsiCo uh, owns Mountain Dew. So clear tie in there, but no. I think you brought up so many interesting things right there. It's enough to talk about for a whole podcast. And apologies,
0: but. I did not know we were going to. Uh,
1: I didn't know we were going to segue into an ad read.
0: I wouldn't have brought up all the like the deep end aspects of the movie right before. Sorry, Mountain
1: Dew. I know. I love that's that's what they want. But I mean, one interesting thing you said, which is a larger point about the film, is there has been a lot of discussion um, around this film about. Some of the things you mentioned and the the ethics and morality, I guess, of those. So, I mean, so, so there's obviously the John Michael Higgins character that there's been a lot of talk about his affected sort of Japanese dialect. And I will say that was an interesting one, because the first time I saw the film, the audience responded to that within like an appropriate kind of horror and like feeling of being uncomfortable, which is, I think, how, how you should react to that. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the second time I saw it, people laughed as if it was like supposed to be funny, which did make me feel a little uncomfortable. Um, there's also discussion of, you know, Alana and Gary's relationship. She's, well, 25 at a later point in the film. She says she's 29. Um, Gary is 15 and their relationship. Spoiler alert, they don't have sex. But, um, you know, it's, there's clearly some sort of romantic feeling there. And I, I think this movie is, is kind of highlighted a lot of discussion about – the role of of like morality and art. And I think that it leads to sometimes these really bad readings of films where because a bad thing happens in the movie, um, the filmmaker could get accused of wanting us to do that. Um, I remember a, a great tweet from comedian Heather Ann Campbell when Uh, Joker came out. It's the best. And you know, there's a lot of panic when the movie Joker came out. I'm sure many of you remember and she had a tweet that said something like my favorite part of the movie is at the very end when he turns to the camera and says, now you go do Joker stuff. <laughs> and I thought that kind of encapsulated like a really weird tendency people have with films, which is to sometimes be like, oh, in a Paul Thomas Anderson film, a woman in her 20s has a vaguely romantic relationship with a 15 year old. So he is saying young ladies start grooming your boys, pick them out and groom them. And that's that's not what's happening in the movie. Um but you know, I, I I think that that it's been interesting to see that discussion around the film. Um, I think there's you know more interesting things to talk about, but definitely brings that to the forefront. And you know, before we were recording today, we even talked about briefly a, a movie, another new movie, a Red Rocket, that also has led to discussions of if, if when a movie depicts behaviors that are are bad, immoral, illegal, should we be uncomfortable about that? Should should filmmakers be held accountable for? uh, portraying those things. One of the,
0: um, one of the things that I really loved about the relationship, you, you said that there are probably more interesting things to talk about. And I'm, I'm curious to sort of like flip the conversation a little bit that Mm -hmm. there's been, you know, a lot said about the, the negative aspects of this relationship as depicted. One of the things that I took away from the movie, um, was, a lot more positive, at least with regards to how I viewed the two of them, that this was, or as it seemed to me, this was like a young confused woman. Who's kind of like maybe trying to make one last grasp at, at childhood and a hundred percent, you know, sort of the, the days gone by and, uh, trying to take a moment to maybe stop and smell the roses because she realizes that, you know, uh, reality is knocking a little bit and she kind of has to figure out what she wants to do with her life and that can be very scary and frustrating and it may not be... Oh, go ahead.
1: I was say, and I think those are the parallel journeys we have in the film, right? You have Alana's character who's in her 20s and is is caught between wanting to hold on to, to this aspect of like freedom and possibility that you associate with youth. Then you have Gary, who is a teenager, who's out here starting businesses as if he's, you know, yeah. some uh he's a business kid. school grad. Yeah, like yeah. a tenant bomb, of course. So we kind of have these characters almost meeting in the middle. The the older person holding on to their youth, the younger one who just wants to be an adult, and I think sees some of that in her and that space in the middle allows them to have a really interesting relationship in the film. Absolutely, yeah. There, there's a, a weird confluence of like
0: what their interests and desires are at this point in their lives. Whether it's for him to be like to be taken seriously and and to be validated as a person by an older woman, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's necessarily everything that the movie is focused on. And for her to just be able to like not necessarily recede or regress but to be able to feel like she i mean within this like taxonomy of like her him all of his little friends and minions that help him with a, like it. she is an authority figure like she one of the the first times that they uh that they spend any amount of time together is that she uh, accompanies him as a, a chaperone to a an industry event in new york city and it's this weird kind of thing of like she can she can sort of blend in to both worlds a little bit where uh their relationship dynamic is what it is but because she is i mean she is an adult she is able to give him the sort of like the stamp of 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 approval from the world of adults to be able to open doors for him and stuff like that it is it's kind of funny the way that they they trade on their uh the very things that they're trying to sort of like push off to the margins in the pursuit of their own interpersonal relationship.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's fun that in the movie too, when we see Alana in a few uh, scenes at home with her family actually played by her, her actual family, yeah. her sisters who make up the band Haim or Haim, however one says it and her uh, parents. And in those scenes, it's very clear Kind of like she isn't like she literally is in real life. She is the the baby of the family, the one who the parents are giving shit to. She has older sisters who seem like they have more going on with their life. So when she's with Gary and his friends, or as she refers to them Gary's fifteen year old friends, <laughs> um, she does get to be like the cool in charge person. She's the one who can drive the car. She's the one who can chaperone. Who can expertly um, back up a cube truck down <laughs>
0: down the incredible. Hollywood Hills?
1: Incredible! In the most um, nerve
0: wracking scene in uh, in in all of twenty twenty one cinema, um, I was sitting on the edge of my seat as she backed that bad boy down the uh, down the
1: Hollywood Hills. Well, I did learn this. Um, one of the screenings I went to, um, Paul Thomas Anderson and Alanaheim came out afterwards and did q and A, a Q&A, and it was Very really nice. great. And something they talked about was. The first day of shooting, so the first day that Alana, uh, the the real-life person, was ever a professional actor, was when she had to film scenes backing up a truck while Bradley Cooper leaned over her (laughs) and sort of, like, vaguely harassed her and, like kissed her while talking to her and in an incredible scene, but just having this person say like, it was my first day ever acting. And Bradley Cooper was leaning on top of me as I tried to drive a car. She also said that they, they filmed those scenes for a few days. And at the end of it, Bradley Cooper kind of snapped out of it and was like the sweetest guy ever. And was like, Oh Oh, are Okay. I didn't mean to make you uncomfortable. Cause I guess when he was playing John Peters, he just went all in for like a 72 hour window. As you can tell when you see the movie, (laughs) he he really goes goes for it. But yeah, so it was interesting to hear uh, just the, the experiences of these these young actors being in these situations where they've never been in a film before, and now you're opposite Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper in the same movie. Oh, I was just going to say, I um, uh, I, I had avoided the, the trailers and uh, any
0: marketing that I could. I always, when I'm really excited about a movie, I want to kind of go in as cold as possible and just let the movie work its magic. And as I was walking into the theater, I saw a big licorice pizza standee, and um. Couldn't help but see some of those names on the marquee, Sean Penn, Bradley Cooper. Yeah. And that was the first time I had noticed or or, or become aware of that in any capacity. And kind of the entire movie, not that I was sitting there waiting for, I'm not like a huge Bradley Cooper fan or whatever, but as the movie goes on and goes on and goes on. I'm sitting there kind of thinking to myself, like, how are they going to fit Bradley Cooper into this? Thing? Like, when is he going to show up? And then he comes out as John fucking Peters. And I le- I leaned over to my girlfriend at that point. And I was like, oh boy, this is going to get really rough. And sure enough, similar to some of the stuff that we were talking about with regards to, like, depicting more problematic aspects of the era and certain folks uh, within this milieu, like, he he gives a performance that is, like, so totally devoid of ego with this. It, I, I mean, I can imagine someone such as himself after kind of ascending out of the sort of frat bro comedy school that he came up in, you know, he's he's an actor studio trained performer. But for so long he was just that that kind of like he was wedding crashers. He was the hangover. He's that really mm-hmm. nasty. Uh, a bullyish, like just just the worst of the worst kind of toxic guy, and to see him go to like Academy Award nominated director and actor, et cetera, et cetera, and then to still kind of like have both his feet on the ground for a performance like this, and be willing to come out, like you said, just come out swinging for the fences and just going for something that's so unsavory and and so nasty is like. It really is one of those performances that does kind of like steal the movie for 15 minutes.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Bradley Cooper's time in the film reminds me of like, you know, you see this in in a lot of old cartoons when, you know, a cartoon cat is in a bathtub and someone throws a a, uh, toaster into the tub and gives it a (laughs) jolt of electricity. His performance is like the toaster in the tub in that movie. It just is this jolt of manic electricity and like danger I mean, God, his line read when he says uh, "Love tales so much, it's gonna get me killed one day." <laughs> is just <laughs> amazing. So yeah, it's, and it, but I think it's a it's a cool move on again to heap praise on Paul Thomas Anderson to have two unknown first time actors anchoring your film. And then having some really big time, incredible performances um, from great actors, and you just give them like five minutes of screen time, just a little, a little dash of Tom Waits and Sean Penn um, throughout the film, but really leaning into those young characters and letting them carry the film. And um, s- speaking of those, uh, uh, you, we've we've talked a, a
0: little bit about performances, but Cooper Hoffman um, to. Uh, uh, you know, I think Alana Haim has gotten her due, but he's, he's phenomenal in this movie. Um, Incredible. I think uh, there was similar to what I was saying before. I didn't, I didn't know that that was Philip Seymour Hoffman's son going into the movie. Cause I hadn't, hadn't read into it. I didn't want to know who was in the movie. And uh, I don't even know if I had seen his name, maybe in the beginning credits or something like that, but I hadn't put two and two together until there's a there's a moment where he is sitting across the table from Alana and he's on the phone trying, I think he's trying to wrangle up some pinball machines at that point. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of giving him grief, and they get into what is like very much coded as a sort of domestic dispute. And he he has a few line reads, and he just gives her a look that was so perfectly his dad, like so evocative of mm-hmm. his father. That in that moment I was it like all the the pins fell into place in my head and I was like oh my god he's got it like whatever his old man had you know I th- I think Philip Seymour Hoffman one of the finest screen actors of this or any generation he's phenomenal um, but I, I w- I'm really excited to see if uh, if if Cooper Hoffman does some other stuff after this because he
1: he clearly has the knack he was really really good in that yeah and there's just a sweetness to his performance as well that makes you. It it makes it believable that this 15-year-old kid could pull off all the shit he pulls off. Worth noting as well that um, his character is based on a guy. I think his name is Gary Getzman, a Hollywood producer who was a child actor. And many of the pretty crazy things that happened in the film are based on real stories he's told Paul Thomas Anderson over the years. Um, So a lot of that is grounded in history. Like he did start a waterbed company. Um, He he was a child actor and all these sorts of things. Um, There's one thing I wanted to bring up. To, to put my uh, philosophy bro head on for a second, but but I think it I think a consistent theme throughout I think most of PTA's films, especially since Magnolia, is I do think he's interested in, and I won't even say capitalism. I will say American capitalism, um, and in different films he's explored. I think both capitalism and religion. The, the peak of this is, of course, There Will Be Blood, where in the character of Daniel Plainview, we just see like what does the American capitalist id look like as, like, a person. Yeah, unvarnished. And, 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 yeah. yeah, and where does that lead you? And I think in this movie, it's kind of in the background because it's it's a beautiful movie, and it's a, a movie where you smile a lot, and the final scene is beautiful. So many of the musical choices really get you feeling good. But it's ultimately a sad story because, I, at least in my mind, for both of these characters, we see them running up against the pressures... Put on them by um, the capitalist economy and media infrastructure and all this sort of stuff. You have Gary, who you know lives with his mom. He's kind of like responsible for their family finances, and it becomes clear at, at a certain point in the film that he's not on the way up as a child actor. Like he's peaked. Uh, yeah. He's probably not going to be booking more stuff. So there's a reason he's he's trying to start all these businesses and becomes a little hustler because it's like he sees how can I have power and importance in america in you know in the 70s i need to be making money i need to be starting businesses i need to be taking care of my family you have a similar thing with alana where she's working these shitty jobs she doesn't like she's not happy um and you know in the back half of the movie we see her try to be the adult she thinks she should be and in in one part that's her trying to be an actor and uh, existing in that world for a little bit until she gets tossed off of a motorcycle. And in <laughs> and, and another part of that, um, she gets involved in politics um, for a, a campaign for a local politician played by Benny Safdie. Yeah. and And, and in both cases, we see how in trying to live in the adult world, the world of political and entertainment success, it sucks in, in both cases. And she sees that there's a lot of shit going on in those worlds and that it's not as magical as you would think it is. And in a sense, then I see the relationship between Gary and Alana is almost these last days of two characters Kind of like, you know, fighting against the dying of the light, um, fighting against the encroachment of a world that's not going to be fun. And we see that like the movie set against the backdrop of the, the oil shortage that hit America in the early 70s. And, um, you know, the a lot of stuff in like because that was that's that's the Nixon era. Right. Yeah. Right. Or is that? Yeah. OK. Um and I don't know, I'm curious what you think about that, because I do think that's something for me that's one of the interesting themes throughout his films. And I liked how it wasn't at the forefront. It doesn't hit you over the head with it. But I think you really feel that in the background throughout the movie. Yeah,
0: there, there's a really there's a moment where it's really beautifully illustrated um, just on screen in a single frame as, uh, uh Gary is sitting out in a waiting room before an audition for, you know, he's a child actor for a child role. And it's him and he's 15 years old and it's him and like a bunch of kids probably half his age and easily half his size as they're all sitting against the wall. It's like he's just a mountain in the middle of this straight flat plain. Um, And then as soon as he gets called in to read, they immediately respond to like, oh, you've you've grown up, take a look at you. And I think he is, uh, while not discouraged or dismayed by that, he's smart enough to know that like, The writing's on the wall a little bit. And he has enough of a nest egg built up from, you know, maybe some projects that he's done and the business that he and his mom run together that he can still sort of at this, you know, he's not too old to reinvent himself at 15. Like he can figure out a way to pivot. And you mentioned uh, uh, sort of Alana's uh, travails through uh, politics and, and acting in her own right that those scenes always very much feel like I don't want necessarily want to say like she's playing an adult, but she is kind of playing a role and she's trying to see how she can like fit within these systems. And, and I think there's, you, you mentioned Benny Safdie's character. There's something really beautiful that the film illustrates with him as well that like tying in this notion of, of forbidden love between Alana and, um and Gary, Uh, Benny Safdie's character who is running for mayor of LA uh, it's revealed later on after he asks Alana out for a couple of drinks when she finally meets him at the restaurant he's there with his boyfriend or his his partner and he asks Alana to walk out with his partner so that no one sees the two of them leaving together and it is this really it's this a really lovely scene because that obviously it hurts his partner and they, they spend some time sort of unpacking that, but because the movie structure just kind of dips in and out of uh, these other characters' lives, you only get this one snapshot and it it is one of those things that kind of, while the, the film is playing with the sort of like permissiveness of the culture at the time, there's also an aspect of uh, of uh, repression and and the anxiety that comes with that, and it's really interesting how how the film with each new vignette is constantly sort of uh,
1: scrutinizing that uh, that dichotomy. Oh my god, absolutely! Um, and you know, I think I mean that's that's a really heartbreaking scene when you see the uh, Sapti character who plays Joel walks, who's a, an actual guy. Um, I listened to an interview with him. There was an actual. Um, guy who was on city council in LA, ran for mayor, eventually moved to New York. He now runs like the the Warhol Foundation and gives grants to uh up-and-coming uh conceptual artist. So that's fun, and eventually was able to to come out and live a live a fun life as an openly gay man. Props to him. Um, but another scene of the film that was really tragic is there is a scene where Alana's character is um with um sean penn's character who's playing a version of an actor who i'm forgetting now he's like playing a
0: version of william holden yeah
1: Yeah. and there's a scene where like he's basically just reading lines from a film alana literally says like is this like lines i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) and yeah and at one point she says to him but i'm sexy right and he's like not even paying attention. And it's so clear that she's just looking for this affirmation and this belonging while across the table, Gary and his friends, you know, they come in with an assassin's focus to try to give them bad vibes. Um, but it really I think there's, there's early on in the movie, Alana's character is so intense, you know, like the first thing she says to like Gary is like, oh, creep. Um, and, and we see her kind of open up and you see those those cracks emerge throughout The film. Um, And, you know, I think like another PTA theme is happening throughout the movie as well, where we see found families uh, because it happens over and over again in PTA movies, both for better or worse, where we see people create communities and families often outside of their biological bonds. We see the, uh, you know, bad version of that in something like the master where that can be used in a manipulative way. I think in this film, we see it happen in a really nice way. Um, where Gary and Alana and Gary's friends, uh, create something of a family and find some love and meaning and purpose together in a way that's pretty beautiful. Yeah. And, and the film is
0: constantly, um, positioning that through the lens of the era as well. That you, you brought up that scene where Gary and his boys go into the, the tail of the cock to try and, um, Uh, well not necessarily intentionally to try and get in her head or whatever but once they see that she's there they make a point of you know trying to sit near her and there's this great moment where the restaurant's maitre d comes up to gary and he goes maybe you don't want to eat here tonight maybe you want to take your friends to a pizza parlor blah blah blah. It it reminded me of um the sloppy stakes bit from I think you should leave. Yeah, of just like
1: oh my god, this
0: guy trying to trying to avert a disaster, and you just it, you get this sense like I uh, the reason I bring that up in the context of uh, the the era is that like despite the fact that he is 15 years old, everyone in this movie treats him like he is more of an adult and more of an authority than they really afford Alana's character. Um, and and so often she is whether it's, you know, not necessarily with the political stuff, although she's kind of used as a beard in that one scene. Um, but throughout her her adventures in filmmaking or her dalliance with uh, with movie auditions, she's constantly being infantilized and and constantly being objectified to the point where, <laughs> On the back of Sean Penn's motorcycle, the last thing she, she asks him is, like, do you even remember my real name? Because he keeps calling her yeah. Grace in reference to Grace Kelly. Um, and there's, there, there is a, like, while there is that, that found family aspect to it, I was weirdly kind of thinking of, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever, ever read anything about Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn's relationship um they of course did uh, tons of films together um they were uh, a couple up until his death um and uh, they were together for for quite uh, quite some time and Catherine hepburn's entire on-screen persona is is so fiery she was kind of like you know the the, the one of the early models of like um you know the the, the woman in charge and she's uh just always Like, always there with a joke, and she gives as good as she gets, and she was able to turn, you know, the Cary Grants and the Jimmy Stewarts of the world on their head on screen, and and that's why people loved her so much. Um, And despite that on-screen persona, when you read about her off-screen relationship with Spencer Tracy, it was like, while they had, to my understanding, by all accounts, a mostly healthy relationship, he was still, like, very domineering and uh, kind of repressive with how... Uh, or or, you know how uh, how they were presented as a couple and while uh, to bring it back to licorice pizza while there is a sense of like familial bonding in this and while there is like a clear romantic chemistry between the two of them um it's mostly chased up until you know the end of the film when they kiss and then there's also a, a scene where she uh she shows him her boobs if you can imagine such a thing um There is still this notion that because uh, Gary is so type A that even if, even if they age out of the distasteful aspect of this relationship, if, you know, they're able to maintain this sort of uh, back and forth for the next 10 or 20 years until their relationship is a little bit more uh, acceptable, you do get the notion that like, oh, he may still be a product of his era in kind of the worst way. Mm. That, like, yeah right, right now he goes exactly as far as anyone will let a 15-year-old go. But what happens when that same personality is throwing around his weight at 30 or 40? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is, it is kind of, I, I think the movie is, it benefits from the fact that we never have to see that. <laughs> we never have to see where this yeah, goes. Because yeah, yeah. in my mind, I think this is, the way that I read the film is that this is maybe one crazy summer and that, you know, eventually these two are going to part ways. This is just untenable. Um, but for the moment yeah. that we capture them, it's, you know, it's just, it's it's a lovely collection of memories between the two of them. But I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think I agree with what you're saying. And I think it's stated well um, in some dialogue from Gary's character in their first meeting at the Tale of the Cock. Um, where he says, I'm not going to forget you and you're not going to forget me. And it sounds really intense when he first says it, but... I think it, it gives that read that you just pointed out that it's one summer of their lives. They're both going to grow in different directions, but they're not going to forget that. And they're not going to forget those experiences. And, and those are going to be formative do they are. And I think it, it reminds you that just, just cause the beautiful summer ends or the interesting relationship ends or the career as a child actor ends, doesn't mean it wasn't great while it happened and doesn't mean it can't still be a formative experience. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, I'm curious, um, how do you how do you rate this in the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson oeuvre? Um, and I'm not going to ask you to rank all movies or anything, no, but no, I no. don't know. In general, where does this fit um, for you? I like it a lot, but I think it's one that, like I said before,
0: I, I, I kind of need to see it again. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I mentioned before my favorite film of his is Phantom Thread, but the first time I saw that movie... I kind of left the theater not really knowing what I had seen, and I think that's that's a testament to the film itself. That like kind of similar to Licorice Pizza in a way, that while it's positioned as a romance, you don't really understand the shape that the film is taking until the end of it. Um, so uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I could place it uh, exactly in my mind. I know. Um, it's very difficult for me to imagine anything breaking into like my top three at this point. I, like Phantom Thread, I would say after that, there will be blood, and then probably Boogie Nights. And those are just so fucking solid to me. Um, this one I really, really like, but it feels like, like we were saying before, it feels. Somewhat inauspicious, uh, and that's not to take anything away from it. But it feels like something that is is much more about a feeling and something that he wanted to express and capture some memories on film. And I think whatever he does next will be all the better for it. That maybe he'll he'll uh, you know push himself a little bit uh, a little bit more or dream a little bit bigger with regards to um you know the the scope of his ambitions. But uh, he's my favorite living filmmaker, and I'm down for whatever he does next. But uh, what what about you? Where do you think it ranks?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because um, I would never say this movie is better than the movies you mentioned. And I think, you know, when we compare it to a movie like There Will Be Blood, which I think we both agree, w- one of the best movies of the past like 100 years, one of the best Love movies it. of American filmmaking um, in which one of the best actors in the history of acting puts on a hell of a show while exploring themes that encompass the very question of America. Like, what, what is America, means. yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? So in a sense, it's like, I feel like I, I can't compare the two because Licorice Pizza is such a good hang. It's such a fun movie. It's a movie that I, I'll probably rewatch a lot. I've seen it twice. I know I'm going to see it a third time soon. I'll probably see it more times than that while it's still in theaters. Whereas There Will Be Blood is a movie that that moved me, but I wasn't rushing to get right back into the theater because it leaves you in kind of a heavy spot. Like You walk out of the theater there and you and your buddies kind of like, don't say anything for a bit until you're ready. It's Whereas kind you of a can walk out marathon, of Licorice yeah. Pizza. Yeah. Licorice Pizza is a movie you can see with friends, walk out of, it and be like, damn, that was fun. Um, largely, too, because it has such a great soundtrack. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's a movie I'm going to watch over and over for years to come. And I think, like you said, it's not going to go down as Paul Thomas Anderson's best, but it will go down as just a really good movie. So, I don't know. I think we're, I can probably speak for both of us in saying that we, we just recommend you check the movie out if you can. Um, very much worth a watch.
0: And I would also recommend if you're a big PT Anderson fan, I I just looked it up, uh, to make sure that I got the title, right. Um, the, I think the Venn diagram of wisecrack fans and Paul Thomas Anderson fans, this is perfect for the folks right in the middle. Uh, there's a great book called blossoms and blood postmodern media culture and the films of Paul Thomas Anderson that covers, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it covers everything up to like inherent
1: vice. Um, I will say that, um, wisecrack and this, will probably come out around the same time as this podcast, might have a video coming out on PTA Ooh, that uh, interacts with that book Oh, perfect. Uh, and kind of talks about some of the themes from that. So very, very good, uh, I guess, like brand synergy right now by accident.
0: And obviously, Talking to Tan is not, not a Wisecrack podcast, but I think we no, do have we've some. We've hacked into the feed. We yeah. have some crossover audience,
1: certainly. A um, uh, i I'm, I'm really eager
0: to see that video, man.
1: Hey, me too. And if you're listening to this, watch it and let us know what you think. But um, Raymond, thanks for having me on. Talking to Taun is always very fun and very exciting to talk about this, this movie, this director. I mean, it's just uh, I mean, some of the comments will say, A, where is the discussion of 2021 French film Taton?" And B, why did you guys just agree so much? But sorry. Uh, we talked about American filmmaker and the movies. Good. So, yeah. Enjoy. Th- yeah. <laughs> And, and In we're, um, bonus.
0: While we're breaking ranks from our, our usual discussion, I'm curious if you have uh any other movies that you saw this year other than uh other than Titan, other than Licorice Pizza, do you want to throw out any recommendations or maybe uh, uh some of your favorites from the year?
1: Ooh, off the top of my head, and these are some movies that maybe wouldn't normally talk about on Talking Titan or um Show Me the Meaning. One of my favorite movies of the year or is Culture, Men Culture for Island. that matter. Yeah, Culture Range, <laughs> yeah. Um but there's a movie came out this year called Bergman Island that I loved. I, I still find myself thinking about it. Uh, I would I would highly recommend checking that out if you can. Um, I loved this movie more than a lot of other people. I think I love The French Dispatch. Uh, I understand why some people didn't like that. And then this is a recency bias thing, but also really loved Red Rocket, which I just saw. Um, still need to see it. Yeah, and I'm still very, very much looking forward to seeing um, Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, like a likewise. single Cohen brother film. So yeah. How about you? What are, what are some films that you saw this year that maybe we haven't talked about on the podcast before that stood out to you? Um,
0: boy, across different podcasts, I've talked about a lot of favorites this year. Obviously mm-hmm. Tatan, uh, Green Knight is probably still my favorite of the year. I love, Oh,
1: I j- finally just saw that. Did it you was just so watch good.
0: It? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I loved, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which we talked about over on SMTM. Uh, God, I really, that really was this year.
1: Yeah, yeah. I what think a year. I think
0: that was one that kind of maybe it got bumped into 2021. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. Everything was so so weird uh, in the early days of the pandemic, unlike now where everything is cool and normal. Um, Pig. I'll second uh, the French Dispatch. I thought was very good, and also one that hasn't been getting a lot of love, uh, but I, I just rewatched it yesterday because uh, I'm quite fond of it. And uh, its filmmaker is uh, Seance. It's written and directed by Simon Barrett, who wrote. Uh, okay. Such films as Your Next and The Guest, and uh, Seance is really fun. It's uh, kind of like a slasher slash giallo slash ghost story, and it's um, you know maybe maybe not the most uh, auspicious film uh, on any uh, any end of the year lists, but uh,
1: if you have a Shutter subscription, uh, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Amazing. Well, thanks for those, and I um I bet we'd like to hear what movies people liked. Well, yeah. how how could how could people let us know? If there are films they loved, if they want to disagree with us about films we loved, or just wanted to talk about, uh, you know, licorice pizza or Titan, how how could they get in touch with us? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at
0: crematoria, and uh, what about you, Michael?
1: I'm at Michael O'Burns um, on on Twitter, and then on Letterbox. I think it's I think it's Burns four twenty sixty nine. But you can maybe just track me down there. And then if they wanted to get in touch with the podcast in general, what would that email address be? Well, of course, there's Talkin.Tatan at gmail.com.
0: Um, but mm-hmm. if you want to uh, contact us at Show Me the Meaning, it's uh, probably
1: on the screen. <laughs> I think it's movies at wisecrack.co is where hey, you go. And that's is. movies at And if you wanted to call... Um, 213-534-8807 that's 213-534-8807 I would love some people to call and just leave in a quick message because you know we can't play it if it's too long tell us like your top 5 movies of the year and just say them, just just give a quick list maybe a few sentences overall if you want, I'm just going to ask for that so call us at 213 534 let us know your top 5 of the year or email us at movies at wisecrack.co. also let us know your top 5, would love to hear what everyone's been watching and enjoying this year
0: yeah, absolutely. Hit us up with uh, recommendations.
1: Yeah, well, um, I guess that's it for this episode of Talking to Tan. Um, Thank you once again for the uh, Show Me the Meeting Gang and Wisecrack Incorporated for letting us air this on their prestigious network. Thank you, Raymond, as always, for having me on. Um, and we will be back soon to continue discussing Tawn. And I think if I had this correctly, we were going to break down the first party scene with the firemen. Um, And talk about the specifics of how French firemen dance to the music of future islands. Absolutely. Uh, And what that says about uh, the decline of culture.
0: And then in 2022, we're just going to be doing a minute-by-minute analysis where we cover one minute of the film per day. So uh, believe me, you think we've, uh, we've said all that could be said about Tatan? At this point, absolutely not. No, we haven't even breached the surface.
1: Okay, well, we will see you soon. Thanks again. And no matter what Raymond tells you, this has been Show Me the Meaning. We'll be back soon. (laughs) Bye.